In my two lectures, uh, this is the title, squeezed right up the top there, of tonight's uh, performance. Uh, in, um, in my two lectures so far, I've been criticising the mood of thought and, associated, and the associated more theoretically developed outlook that I call exclusionism, both of which have reasons for rejecting or give reasons for rejecting or restricting a serious role for religious ideas and influence in the public and political arenas. I've tried to do several things in pursuit of this objective, but two are worth summarising to begin with, especially for anyone who may have missed the earlier lectures. The first is to... Uh, I've, tended to I've tried to diffuse the tendency to regard religious conviction as inherently prone to violence and the disruption of civil concord, or even the tendency to regard it as more prone to such things than other forms of conviction. Secondly, I've uh, tried to... Uh, Interrogate, if I may lapse into postmodernism uh, very briefly, I've tried to interrogate the idea that there is a type of preferred neutral reasoning about political and public issues, especially about the most important ones, variously called public reason or secular reason, that should be, according to some theorists, the proper currency of debate and discussion in that area. Today I want to explore some ways in which religious attitudes and behaviour can be expected to contribute positively to what is valuable in liberal democratic societies. Uh, so today, today I want to explore some ways in which religious attitudes and behaviour can be expected to contribute positively to what is valuable in liberal democratic societies. This would involve uh, going beyond the debate about the propriety or otherwise of employing religious reasons in discussion and argument about public policy in the common political arena, important as that may be. After all, democratic participation involves more than reasoning together since it also involves congruence and conflict of emotions, interests, attitudes, imagination, ideals and ethos. In this connection, uh, I recall a somewhat uh, negative review I read a few years ago in America of a philosophy book on uh, deliberative democracy. It was published in a well-known uh, cultural journal in that country under the scornful heading, The Debating Society. Mm. Although I thought the review was too unsympathetic to the author's attempt to, to shift the discussion and practice of democracy more in the direction of informed and nu nuanced discussion rather than the sloganising and simplification that marks too much contemporary campaigning, commentary and electioneering, I thought the critic had a point. Democratic involvement... Involve, calls upon more resources than the exercise of disembodied reason, whether secular or religious. Consequently, we may make more headway if we focus on certain dispositions, character traits and practices that can help or hinder the legitimate objectives of healthy democracy. The philosopher's concern for reasons is understandable. It is, after all, uh, much of our stock in trade. But carried too far, it can seem merely philosophical in that rather pejorative sense that betokens a dangerous remoteness from reality. From having had a tendency to view virtues as something foreign to the basis of liberal philosophy, a number of philosophers in recent years have taken to discussing the special liberal virtues, as they call them. That seems to me a healthy development, since virtues are amongst the things that help bridge reason, emotion and imagination and bring them to bear upon action and practice. Here I want to bring together some considerations that I hope will help connect religious and liberal democratic virtues. 
Let me begin by revisiting the debate about secular and religious reasons discussed last week. I said that an important element in the exclusionist case was the need to give respect to one's fellow citizens in a liberal democracy. I challenged the idea that a blanket ban on the giving of religious reasons for coercive laws, either entirely or in some restricted area of lawmaking, as with rules, was appropriate. My arguments for this were, first, that the ideas of secular reason and public reason could not bear the weight uh, that, um, support, that the supporting arguments put upon them. Second, that the idea of the secular state or secularity was narrower than that uh, of secularism, which is often conflated with it, as evidenced by the very varied interpretations put upon the former secular state uh, by the different states proud to be called liberal democratic states. Third, that the idea of religious reasons contained certain ambiguities which made it difficult to determine whether certain propositions were religious or not. Where God told me, or the Pope, or the Pope says so, are clearly religious in the way that the exclusionists object to, human life is sacred is beginning to seem less so, especially when it's endorsed by an agnostic or atheist, as it can be. And then, and, quote, the human fetus as a person in the early stages has no explicit taint of religion, but might still be seen as offering a religious premise to an argument if the speaker held it because initially they got the idea from a religious source that they respected wholeheartedly. In the latter case, exclusion would, I think, rule out too much, especially since the speaker may well believe the proposition on grounds that are now independent, are now independent of religious authority, though this, of course, may be very hard to establish in practice, even for the speaker himself. Indeed, those who fought for the freedom of slaves because of the equality of all people in the eyes of God have been succeeded by many in later generations who hold the equality thesis without appeal to God, but as basic to their moral outlook. I won't discuss whether this amounts to holding it for no reason at all, as some theorists believe, uh, including the atheist uh, uh, anthropologist Scott Atran, who thinks of his own commitment to human rights as irrational. Fourth, the respect argument seems to cut both ways, since the onus to show argumentative respect to fellow citizens shouldn't be seen as only requiring religious citizens to respect the credentials of the non-religious. The requirements of respect raise the issue of toleration, to which I shall shortly turn. But also, sensitivity to the point about the two-way nature of a respect may partly explain why John Rawls develops two qualifications to the exclusionist story in his later work. These were the exclusion not only of religious reasons, but of all comprehensive doctrines about the right way to live, and the very considerable narrowing of the types of areas in which exclusion should operate. So we saw uh, that, the con that religious reasons and other non-public reasons could have a place in discussions of public policy for him in universities, clubs, and in what he calls the background culture of civil society. This is an important point because it softens some of the impact of rules as exclusionism and wards off some criticisms from supporters of religion who think that public reason allows no scope at all for the expression of religious convictions in public debates. Rawls thinks <coughs> that there should be plenty of room for this in the media, in universities and in various associations. I discussed these qualifications last week and expressed some of my difficulties with them, but I think they indicate room for qualifications in a similar spirit to the idea that religious people 
should be unencumbered by any restraints upon their contributions to the debates about important matters of public policy. Some of these restraints relate to what I shall call uh, virtues or dispositions of civility, such as tolerance, humility and courtesy. Others relate to practices that are potentially destructive of important features of liberal democracy, including a degree of mutual respect and other practices that seem essential or conducive to the stability and functioning of such polities. Let me begin with toleration as a practice and tolerance as a valuable disposition. I say valuable disposition since there is some debate about whether tolerance is a virtue. A good deal of this turns upon whether toleration in the relevant circumstances is only instrumentally good uh, or is also, so is only instrumentally good or is also intrinsically good. Uh, there's a bunch of philosophical debates around this which I'm not going to get uh, particularly into, though some, something I say bears on the instrumental point. Uh, from the extensive uh, philosophical debate on uh, toleration, we can cull some useful points. One is that we should distinguish between personal and public toleration to which rather different standards might apply. A second is that we can only tolerate something if we consider it wrong. Indifference is not a form of toleration. Furthermore, toleration only exists where we have the power to do something against what we see as objectionable. In the case of politics, we are particularly concerned with what is morally objectionable. With religious concerns and much else, this seems to create a paradox. Uh, for as Bernard Williams puts it, quote, we need to tolerate other people and their ways of life only in circumstances that make it very difficult to do so. Toleration, we may say, is required only for the intolerable, unquote. A very, very Bernard kind of uh, phraseology. Williams raises a, cert, a, a central problem for toleration, but the paradox is overstated. As Brian McGraw has argued, because belief that some acts or policies are very morally wrong is not the same as treating them as intolerable in the sense of requiring actions to root them out. Whether to refrain from possible action against such acts or policies is a question of the costs involved, respectively, in refraining or enacting. It may be that preventing the wrongdoing, either personally or by law, is outweighed by certain goods that are achieved by refraining. These goods may be various, ranging from maintenance of close personal relations, respect for privacy, the valuing of freedom and autonomy, the possibility of changing outlooks by sympathetic persuasion, or the need for sustaining civil peace. The degree to which religious people, or those committed to other comprehensive doctrines, can support such trade-offs depends upon the importance they place upon the values that require the trade-off. Here, different religious traditions and associated theologies will very likely make different judgments and be prepared for different trade-offs, at least initially. But in a settled liberal democracy, which is basically what I'm considering, the interactions between religious communities and individuals on the one hand and non-religious fellow citizens and groups on the other have produced the accommodations that I described last week. These take into account the benefits of a civic life in which no religion dominates to the exclusion of others and in which insights of religious traditions have influenced the civil life, just as non-religious values have influenced religious understanding. How then should toleration look from the religious viewpoint? Since there is no one religious viewpoint or standpoint and the concept of religion is as complex and contested as I discussed in lecture one, 
This issue, this question, is impossibly general. So I shall use Christianity, which is the religion I know best, as a focus for the discussions of the way, the ways in which tolerance could be supported from religious premises and values. The values that I shall highlight are indeed acknowledged, sometimes with different emphases, in all forms of Christianity. But it's only fair to concede that there are other values and theological outlooks within those different forms that might militate against the interpretation of the relevance of those values to the political engagement in liberal democracies that I support. <clears throat> Robust tolerance requires not merely abstaining from persecuting or detesting others for their different beliefs, something that might arise simply from laziness, but, but to some extent respecting the others' holding of those beliefs and associated practices. This doesn't require agreeing with the beliefs or never criticising them. Indeed, such agreement would eliminate the need for toleration. But it requires some respect for their holding the beliefs where those beliefs are integral to their self-respect. There are obviously limits to this, since no degree of respect should be given to a range of acts and practices that involve the persecutions or other serious harming of other people. There are obvious acts and practices such as murder, assault, armed robbery and much else that fall within this range, but there will be problems determining precisely all that falls within it. Similar points can be made about the beliefs that underpin actions and practices within the range. Such problems need to be dealt with by reasoning about the cases and circumstances as they, as they arise, uh, and I don't think there's a mechanical recipe that can solve the problems in advance of such reasoning. I should add that here I am discussing tolerance as a personal, moral and social phenomenon principally, not a legal one. I shall have nothing to say about the exact legal implications of personal tolerance, though there are certainly some. A word is in order here about the difference between respecting beliefs, uh, the, respecting the holding of beliefs, and respecting the person who holds the beliefs. Suppose I have a good friend Jones, whom I discover to my surprise, believes that the sexual fulfilment of homosexual love is disgraceful and immoral. Since I have what I consider excellent reasons to deny this belief, and perhaps reasons to think that the belief can have unfairly damaging consequences for quite a lot of human beings, I can hardly be required to respect the belief itself. What about my respect for Jones? Well, depending on how Jones has come by the belief and the spirit in which he holds it, there's no reason why I should lose my respect for Jones as a person, though I will no doubt modify some of my respect-related attitudes to him. Uh, not possible to get a glass of water, is I should have asked before. Sorry, Rupert. If the belief is sincere and has been either produced by mature reflection and reasoning or resulted from understandable immersion in prevailing cultural norms, I need not think that the person is himself or herself disreputable because of the belief, grossly mistaken as I believe it to be. What about the holding of the belief? Again, given certain conditions relating to the way the belief has come about and the way it is held, that is, without hatred, without a demand for persecution and punishment and so on, it seems reasonable even to respect his holding of the belief. To take another example, I strongly reject the cluster of beliefs that goes to make up what is called managerialism and that has been implemented in universities across the world in different degrees in different places, often to quite awful effect. Still, I don't think it would be right to withdraw personal respect 
from all those who believe in such managerialism, nor to treat their holding of such views uh, in every case with contempt. I'm using the term respect here in a pretty minimal way. It's not equivalent, for instance, to esteem, which is sometimes used in this connection when toleration is discussed, nor does it rule out irritation or anger at the expression of the mistaken beliefs. But it's not as generous, nor I suspect as content weak, as the sense of respect in which we might be enjoined to respect all, all humankind or all living creatures. In my usage, it's morally permissible, at least, to have no respect for Joseph Stalin or his holding of a range of moral and political beliefs, or for much lesser scoundrels and their holding of pernicious beliefs. If this rough sketch of something central that's involved in an attitude of tolerance is near to correct, then it's interesting... Thanks, Mark. It's interesting to explore... Uh, interesting to explore what sorts of existing religious thinking and practice could dispose religious people towards tolerance. It might then be possible to review in <coughs> some detail those significant elements in different religious traditions to provide a sort of overlapping consensus towards tolerance amongst them. Not an overlapping consensus on a rarefied public reason, but upon specific beliefs and virtues. Since, as I said, Christianity is the religion I know best, I shall concentrate these inevitably sketchy remarks on it. But I'm sure that many of the major religions contain elements that parallel those in Christianity. The Christian faith is founded upon love of God and love of neighbour. Christ's two injunctions meant to simplify the law and commandments by showing their underlying basis. As the parable of the Good Samaritan indicates dramatically, a person's differences in culture and belief afford no reason to ignore the requirements of love. This love is even to extend to one's enemies. The full shock of this injunction cannot be underestimated. As my seven-year-old granddaughter put it recently, after being exposed to some Christian education, Jesus said a weird thing. He said you should love your enemies. <laughs> uh, Nick Bunham was present at this conversation. He can verify this. In fact, as a non-believer, tried very hard to... Uh, explain away to Rosa the, uh, uh, the significance of this remark by Jesus. Uh, weird or not, this injunction is much stronger than the respect I have discussed as basic to tolerance, so it should at least offer strong support for that. Of course, this depends on the construal given to the concept of love, and there have been Christian interpretations of that that have allowed for terrible things to be done to neighbours, but a great deal of counterintuitive work has to be done to the concept to endorse these conclusions, and there's plenty of room for Christians and outsiders to press the concept back into a more acceptable shape. Another Christian value is that of peace, which is made much of in Christian tradition, even when the tradition has been accommodated to notions like just war. St Augustine, for instance, who is often credited with inventing the concept of just war, though there are clear antecedents in Aristotle and Plato, writes glowingly of peace in the city of God and elsewhere and makes it a central plank of his ethics. In his theory of the just war, he initiates the idea that even a just war must be conditioned by an ideal of peace, an ideal that's never wholly absent from later versions of the theory. Again, an emphasis upon civil peace is surely a prop to tolerance when the, where the sort of respect I've been discussing can be argued to contribute to maintaining peace and indeed Christians have been very active in peace movements in the late 20th century and today. Even in the context of just war theorising, 
St. Augustine argued strongly that non-violent ways of resolving conflicts were always preferable to resort to war. So a preference for non-violent civil engagement is also supported by the peace emphasis in Christian traditions. Then there is the virtue of humility, much maligned and misrepresented by David Hume and Nietzsche and other critics of Christian ethics. Contrary to Hume, it enjoins not the self-deceit of thinking yourself much worse than you really are, but the recognition that your powers of intellect and virtue are always limited and that the pride of self-love is a powerful motive to exaggerating those and other personal powers. Christians are required to be aware of their limitations with respect to the almighty knowledge and power of God, so in all humility they should be cautious of proclaiming stridently their unique access to knowledge and understanding of God's nature and purposes, even where they're aided by revelation. In our present condition, we see through a glass darkly, as St Paul uh, said, and arrogance towards the way that others see through it, that dark glass, is surely an exercise of unbecoming pride. Of course, some ways of seeing through the dark glass are no doubt better than others, and some people may have turned aside from the glass altogether. So I'm not advocating some form of scepticism or crude relativism about truth. But some truths are more obscure than others, some more contestable, and all need expression in language, which expression is always open to a greater or lesser degree of interpretation. If this is generally true of the search for complex truth, then it must apply even more obviously for our grasp of the realities to which religions aspire to teach and reach. There is no doubt that many Christians have difficulty accepting this point. Some fundamentalists would obviously be uncomfortable with it, but even more sophisticated souls ignore it in their practice and some tend to reject it in theory. Some of the critics of exclusionism who propound <coughs> objections to it similar to my own are uncomfortable with John Rawls's theory of the burdens of judgment, which I interpret as fully compatible with the present argument for intellectual humility and modesty. Of course, the burdens of judgment topic uh, can be interpreted as a sort of scepticism, and this is incompatible with most forms of religion, <coughs> but I don't think that's how Rawls actually intended it. Here I part company with some philosophers with whom I'm otherwise allied in our respective oppositions to exclusionism. Some of these, uh, Leif uh, Weinar in Ethics 1995 is one, insist that religions that affirm the exclusive truth of their core doctrines cannot accept the burdens of judgment as even the relatively mild cautionary principle that Rawls seems to intend. What Rawls basically indicates with the formula is that reasonable people recognise that the deep differences in belief about ultimate matters such as the meaning of our lives, the striving for self-fulfilment, the existence and nature of God, the best ways to live and so on, cannot all be accounted for by bad faith, immorality or stupidity. Even a cursory understanding of the history of religion, indeed the history of Christianity, not to mention the history of philosophy, shows that there's these very deep questions defy widespread agreement amongst conscientious, sincere people, partly because of their complexity and the limited intellectual and imaginative capacities that is the human lot. Different cultural conditions, specific experiences, intellectual and moral traditions and upbringings contribute to the creation of the burden. Consequently, even a strong and correct conviction uh, about some religious truth should not automatically militate against the sort of respect for others holding different beliefs that, it's, that is at the heart of the sort of tolerance a liberal democratic society needs. 
In matters of faith, Christians should be further fortified in this by the widely held uh, Christian doctrine that faith is not achieved by human reason or righteousness alone, but comes in part at least as a gift from God. I do not want to stray too far into controversies about the nature and role of faith within Christian theology. Those who know the chequered history of Christian debates about the nature of faith uh, and salvation, the role of faith in justification and redemption, and the relation of faith to reason, should appreciate the somewhat cautious nature of my expression of the idea of faith as gift. But even those theological movements or outlooks that are committed to a view of faith as somehow opposed to reason rely heavily upon the idea of faith as gift. I'm thinking of what I've elsewhere called the rejectionist tradition or strand in Christian theology in which such figures as Tertullian, Augustine in some moods and of course Luther are prominent representatives. Tertullian's famous comment on philosophical reason understood very broadly highlights the mood of such thinkers. Tertullian said famously, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What has the academy to do with the church? Unquote. Luther's debate on free will with Erasmus, a fellow Christian but humanist philosopher, also shows this temperament at work in very stark fashion. In more modern times, Karl Barth seems to stand in the tradition, especially as his rejection, in his rejection of any role for philosophy in theology. But another strand in Christianity has been more open to the non-Christian intellectual world and some of its practices and attitudes. We might cite Origen, Augustine, in other moods, Aquinas and many of the scholastics, Hooker and Erasmus. That the rejectionist line is hard to maintain consistently is one of its major problems. Even Tertullian had recourse to Athens when he attempted a theological account of the Trinity by employing the Greek philosophical concepts of hypostasis and homoousis in English person or substance in a novel way, a way that was criticised and developed by later theologians. But my point here is that such rejectionists might object to my claim that faith is in part a gift because they think it totally so. But the degree of commitment to the gift claim is really not an issue for my argument. So this has been a bit of a sidetrack. Still one I enjoy. I have said that the burden of judgment, suitably understood, is not committed to scepticism about truth or knowledge. Indeed, I think it's incompatible with such scepticism because the burden of judgment doctrine is itself a truth claim and a rather strong one about the difficulties that reasonable people of goodwill have in coming to agreement about certain sorts of truth claims. Skeptics and also relativists do like to appeal to the existence of deep disagreements and difficulties in resolving them as premises for their sceptical arguments. But these arguments are, I think, notoriously flawed, especially when, they are, especially when they are sufficiently global. It should also be noted that these philosophical or sceptical arguments seek to show that the difficulties are in principle impossible to overcome, and the argument from the burdens of judgment to tolerance and respect need not claim that the disagreements have that feature. The difficulties only need to be deep, potentially long-lasting, and understandable against the background sketched. Some may be rationally irresolvable, that, but it, that is hard to see. But it is hard to see how that could be decided a priori. These comments about the sources of uh, tolerance uh, for Christians suggest features of the spirit in which Christians and indeed religious people more generally should exercise a certain degree of deliberative restraint in their engagement with fellow citizens in the public arena. Deliberative restraint was a, 
uh, phrase that um, uh, Brian McGraw uh, uses in the literature uh, to associate with the um, uh, exclusionist project I'm rejecting, but the, uh, this is a, uh, a different kind of deliberative restraint that I'm looking at now. Uh, Christopher J. Eberle, for instance, has suggested six such informal rules that embody what he calls an ideal of conscientious engagement uh, for religious citizens. The first is, uh, on, they're on the board there, she will pursue, uh, there's more to come, she will pursue a high degree of rational justification for the claim that a favoured coercive policy is morally appropriate. She will, she will withhold support for a given coercive policy if she can't acquire a sufficiently high degree of rational justification for the claim that the policy is morally appropriate. She will attempt to communicate to her compatriots her reasons <coughs> for coercing them. She will pursue public justification for her favoured coercive policies. She will listen to her compatriots' evaluation... Sorry, this should be up. Uh, uh, she... Uh, what about what I'm after? Uh, she will pursue public justification for her favourite uh, coercive policies. Right. She will listen to her compatriots' evaluation of her reasons for her favourite coercive policies with the intention of learning from them about the moral propriety or impropriety of those policies. She will not support any policy on the basis of a rationale that denies the dignity of her compatriots. These seem to me to be eminently sensible suggestions that cohere with the background of Christian thought and social virtue that I've attempted to sketch above. They contain no reference to some privileged position for secular or public reason, but they go a good distance towards meeting the concerns that underpin what I've argued to be a flawed project of seeking such neutral reason. A further point about the role of religion in the public space of liberal democracies is that involvement in Christian communities may itself be a positive influence on healthy involvement in the common tasks of liberal democratic political activity. There are undoubtedly negative aspects that can accompany such involvement, and I will advert to some of these in the next section. But the positives need attention also. Indeed, uh, Brian McGraw uh, uh, advocates the potentially positive aspects for liberal democracy of Christian and other religious political parties, and cites in support of this some cases from the European past in which great fears were held for newly emerging Catholic parties in the Netherlands and in Germany, which proved largely unfounded when those parties quickly accommodated to the requirements of compromise, good faith negotiation and a degree of tolerance. McGraw admits other examples are not so helpful indeed, there's some very damaging effects uh, of um, Christian parties in other countries and other circumstances. So I'm not persuaded that religious political parties are as acceptable as he claims. But his basic claim that a certain solidarity of interest within religious communities can work to both motivate them to open political involvement and to inculcate and reinforce attitudes and virtues congruent with liberal democratic politics has plausibility. This is because such involvement... Uh, promotes both a certain degree of pragmatism and exposure to debate and conversation with opposed points of view, and because this then increases the possibility of fruitful interaction between valuable elements in religious and non-religious outlooks. As already suggested, there is a hint of something philosophical in the slightly pejorative sense of the word, or 
heavily pejorative in some cases, uh, about the philosopher's concern with what reasons people can use in the public domain. First, without grave infringement of civil liberties, people can't be prevented from using and proclaiming religious or other comprehensive reason, reasoning in their public dialogue, even about constitutional essentials. Indeed, it's an important point about the exclusionist uh, project, not perhaps sufficiently emphasised usually, that they are committed to free speech and don't advance their argument as a denial of the right of free speech to, rel to religionists. Second, a major problem with religious involvement in the political realm lies in the area of practice and attitude rather than thought and speech, and the concern with licensing reasons tends to ignore this. From the political side, the problem is not so much the reasons individual religious people give for their advocacy, but such things as the underhand secretive ways their institutional leaders try to change policy or abuse religious authority by promoting political projects under the false guise of religious doctrine. There are also failures to adopt the positive aspects of open dialogue and compromise in the public arena or the positive antipathy to doing so. Apart from the dangers these practices by religious people pose to a healthy polity, dangers equally posed when the non-religious resort to those practices, the practices should be suspect in purely religious terms since they tend to contaminate the understanding and exercise of primary religious impulses. Concentration upon practical ways in which religious involvement in politics can be fruitful and criticism of potentially damaging modes of interaction may provide a more promising way forward for all concerned with open democracy than the path of exclusion as deliberative restraint. It may also make sense of Christ's remarks about the due deference to God and Caesar. Can we say any more about the broad principles that should inform public debate and policy formation in a liberal democracy? I think so, but I do not mean to suggest that these proposals should have the force of law. I'm interested in moral and cultural norms. First, publicity and non-manipulation. One of the things that worries people about the role of religions or ideologies of any sort in public life is not their presence but their covert operation. It's not that people object totally to the occasional offering of exclusively religious reasons for policies so much as they object to the operation of religious or other sectional pressures behind the scenes. There is an important publicity <coughs> condition in liberal democracy, though an obscure one to uh, fully analyse, and the philosopher Immanuel Kant was one of the first to see this. As I understand this condition, however, it is misconstrued as the offering of reasons that everyone could accept. It should rather be seen, where reasons are concerned, as the offering and operating of reasons that everyone can scrutinise. The emphasis upon the transparency of government and of public institutions has become in recent years a prominent part of public rhetoric about politics in Western countries, especially in connection with problems of corruption. Often this, uh, this talk of um, uh, transparency is mere rhetoric and it must be acknowledged that there will be some matters of policy that occasionally, rarely I should hope, require a degree of secrecy. But the presumption should be in favour of transparency. Of course, politics itself will always involve deals, and it would be utopian to ignore the inevitable operation of pressure groups. But the primary model of policy formation should be the open presentation and contestation of values, arguments, uh, impertinent uh, information and policies. The violation of this condition was one of the things 
that made, I believe, the late Mr Bob Santamaria's movement such a pernicious force in Australian political life. Uh, most people here won't have a clue about what that was about, so I'll have to make a slight detour to it. Some of the movement's goals were commendable, and the sincerity and religious conviction of Mr Santamaria and of many of his disciples is clear, though I think it plausible that much of the motivation for his covert activities came from certain aspects of his, of his Italian cultural background, as has been plausibly argued by Bruce Duncan in his 2001 book on the movement, and had much less to do with his religious faith. In any case, the furtive manipulation of the public arena and of their fellow Catholics by many in the movement was damaging to both religion and public civility. Here follows a thumbnail sketch of this amazingly complex and extremely fascinating uh, uh, movement uh, for an English, predominantly English audience. Uh, the movement began as a secret organisation directed by Santa Maria, which aimed initially to combat communism in the trade union movement in Australia after World War II. Santa Maria, a man of extraordinary energy, organisational skills, genuine intelligence and considerable personal charm, uh, worked assiduously to enlist the aid of the bishops and senior clergy to finance his organisation and to spread the word secretly amongst Catholics so that his campaign seemed to those in the know to be a badge both of Catholic identity and a thrilling underground adventure. It rapidly adopted firefights fire tactics from the communists themselves and by various means, many of them devious, gained control of a great deal of the trade union movement throughout Australia in the period. It rapidly infiltrated, as its enemies, including me, would say, the Australian Labor Party, gaining control of its Victorian branch uh, and very significant influence in its federal executive and much else. In the mid-1950s, it was exposed by the then leader of the ALP, uh, Dr Everett, uh, resulting in a long-standing split in the Labor Party when Santa Maria organised the movement members to form a splinter party, the Democratic Labor Party, of which he was never himself a member, whose preferences helped keep the ALP out of power for 23 years. During these years, there were Catholics who strongly opposed the movement and a critique of it, while its very existence was still officially denied, uh, not only by Santa Maria but by the hierarchy and everybody else, was published in the Australian liberally inclined journal The Catholic Worker, with the result that the Catholic worker was banned from distribution in churches and opponents of the movement, including the Catholic Arthur Corwell, who was the leader of the Australian Labor Party, were condemned from various Catholic pulpits. A combination of events, including increased lack of sympathy and support from Catholics, finally brought about the effective demise of the DLP in the early 1970s. Uh, my, next, uh, my next thing is the importance of uh, information. No matter how open and explicit the premises and arguments of those debating public <coughs> policy questions may be, the resolution of problems will not be progressed unless the parties have access to the best information available about the problems. This is one of the justifications for freedom of the press. Obvious as it is, however, there are many areas of public policy where vested interests make information hard to obtain. I took part in debates about telecommunication policy in Australia a few years ago and was dismayed to find that, ironically for an information industry, much of the workings of the industry itself was shrouded in secrecy. This reflects the disturbing tendency of governments and corporations to deny information that may be required for serious policy discussion and action on such grounds as that of commercial confidentiality. No doubt it's important in a competitive business environment 
that a degree of secrecy be preserved about certain matters, but the slogan of commercial confidentiality has begun to work to impede policy debate in much the way that the <coughs> incantation of national security has for so long. The fact is that powerful people, whether religious or otherwise, love secrecy, and that secrecy is seldom in the, in the interests of the powerless, the governed, or democratic processes. There is a direct application of this to the behaviour of religious bodies. They should be in the forefront of openness and clarity in their public dealings and in the relations between their leaders and their congregations and the wider community. The recent scandal about uh, uh, ch child sex abuse uh, in the various churches, particularly the Catholic Church, uh, is a sad illustration of the failure of this particular uh, disposition. Organisations cloaked in secrecy and furtive about their finances serve the genuine interests of neither religion nor democracy. I turn to the value of compromise. In a pluralistic... Oh, what did I do? Thanks, Dan. Uh, did I get, do the previous one? Or did I skip that? Anyway, we've moved on. In a pluralistic society, uh, there are inevitably stages at which compromise must occur if policy uh, is to proceed at all. Uh, the topic of compromise is difficult and sensitive, but the idea of compromise is an essential ingredient in all politics and has an even more significant role in democratic politics in pluralist societies. There are, I believe, basic virtues, values and principles that should be beyond compromise, but the capacity to compromise on interests, goals and the implementation of values is not only a necessary ingredient in all political life and community policy procedures, but is itself something that contains positive moral elements. But first let's get clear about what a compromise is. The natural home of compromise is conflict, most especially conflict of interest, preference, objectives between people or groups. Such conflict is different from mere divergence or discrepancy since these may exist without coming into collision. It is the way that differences converge on actions that involve the other which create conflicts of purpose and therefore the prospect of compromise. Compromise is one way to resolve conflicts of purpose. There are others. Violence is another possible procedure. But a compromise is frequently less risky and more rational, in spite of its genesis in conflict. Uh, sorry, in spite of its genesis in conflict, compromise builds upon some base basis of shared goals, not least of which may be the desire to avoid violence. It's a kind of bargain in which several people who see advantages in cooperative endeavours of some sort agree to proceed in a way that requires each of them to surrender temporarily or permanently some of their interests, ends or policies to satisfy others. I've claimed that there's nothing immoral in the procedure of compromise per se, but it's not surprising that the word compromise has some negative overtones and that there's indeed an application of it that has an essentially derogatory meaning. This occurs when we talk of a person's or an institution's being compromised. This is a very interesting use of the verb and suggests that there are some deals that involve not just the tried trading of desire fulfilment, but of basic principle. Such deals go beyond the denial of an interest they may require the undermining of self and integrity. The one compromised has done deals which amount to abandoning enough of those basic principles which are partly constitutive of his or her identity. The practice of compromise therefore contains inherent dangers, but most compromises do not involve this sort of damage, though by definition all involve some loss. Often in politics or policy formation, 
the loss will be a postponement of opportunities to implement changes that one sees as morally significant. Usually this will not amount to the betrayal of principle, unless, as certainly happens, the postponement becomes permanent and accepted in one's heart as permanent, whatever the overt protestations one continues to make. Certainly, someone who cannot compromise on any of her goals or policies, no matter how temporally, is out of place in any form of political action. In the matter of politics, as elsewhere, it's a damaging criticism that a person is unprincipled, and when it comes to compromise, principles are not to be compromised. Nonetheless, life in a democratic pluralist society may require that principles that are important to you may not be capable of being reflected in policy, law or regulation. Arguing your point for your point of view, it may nonetheless become evident that it won't prevail, and you may therefore settle for legislation that embodies some of your moral concerns but not others. Religious people, or at least people of certain religious persuasions, tend to have an aversion to compromise. But where this is not mere fanaticism, it's often based on a failure to appreciate the positive values of compromise. Indeed, it should be emphasised that if compromise can involve moral dangers and loss, it can also be a locus for moral growth. People who are engaged in a common enterprise, be it a marriage, an educational project, a business undertaking or a political enterprise, may find that the path of compromise provides ways of advancing their mutual trust, affection or friendship, as well as the goals they have in common. There are benefits to compromise amongst adversaries, but also amongst friends. The spirit of compromise and the process of compromise need not then be seen as solely oriented to cutting one's losses, for it may be collectively valuable for the community to which one belongs and the good of which one values. The complexity of value conflict. Some of the value conflicts that bedevil public policy are indeed between groups who have profoundly conflicting moral outlooks, values or principles. Others, however, involve conflicts between values that are shared by the parties but given different weights or interpretations. There's an important role for imagination in dealing with situations of this sort. Since human actions are multidimensional and can be variously described and variously justified depending on the angle of vision adopted, the parties to disputes about policy often appear to be arguing at cross-purposes, even discussing quite different actions. Imagine a debate about some action X that involves the application of science to human reproduction. If A thinks of his proposed action X solely as advancing the happiness of a childless couple, and B thinks of it solely as endangering the institution of marriage, while C thinks of it solely as threatening the well-being of the child to be born of the procedure, they are likely to have very different attitudes to the proposal and to reason in very different terms about what is to be done. To advance sane policy discussion, it's necessary for all participants to abandon the blinkers that make it impossible for them to view the proposals under under more than one or two favoured aspects. This is important because very different descriptions of the One Act may all be true, or at least plausible. It's only when diverse perspectives are given due credit that underlying value divergences and agreements can be properly assessed and argued. The debate is then one about how the different and conflicting benefits and disadvantages can be assessed. Progress on this difficult matter can only be achieved where the full force of the underlying values that here conflict are properly appreciated. More generally, the political and policy process is often one of seeking to give 
proper consideration and weight to a variety of legitimate values which can conflict. And where they do, there can exist for the most part no simple decision procedure. Political life often involves deciding on policies which will bring individual rights into conflict with public benefit, as privacy rights can conflict with the need to control serious crime, or the requirements of justice into conflict with financial priorities. Rights to a fair trial may conflict with budget restrictions on legal aid, or the respect for nature into conflict with human needs. An intact forest environment may be incompatible with adequate employment for many workers. Clearly, examples like these could be multiplied indefinitely. But my first point here is simply that policymakers and contributors to policy formation, including those with a religious outlook, need to recognise the different dimensions of policy proposals and the values they involve and to give full acknowledgement of their significance where they conflict. Sometimes it will be possible to, dive, to devise solutions that pay full respect to the competing considerations, but often enough this will not be possible, and a reasonable decision may have to be made that involves the sacrifice of genuine human goods. Of course, it also needs to be emphasised that values not only compete, but very often converge. Some philosophers make the mistake of portraying the moral life as one of permanent conflict and agonising choice, just as some theologians make the opposite mistake of picturing it as one of seamless harmony. These practices and associated hindrances to them are only some that could be mentioned in this connection, though they are, I think, particularly important. Uh, I've omitted to mention uh, the uh, problems of uh, a proper understanding of authority in religious uh, communities and religious connections and the way in which religious leaders uh, can abuse the authority that's proper to them in the, in the political arena, but that is another important thing to be explored. Similarly, the virtue elements of love, peace and humility that I mentioned uh, are only just three from the Christian tradition that I've invoked here. There are no doubt more that could be cited, but I'll leave that uh, to another time. I should conclude by acknowledging that Christians and adherents of other religions are in reality as much prone to the temptations of arrogance and of tendencies to domination and love of power as other people. Uh, the Christian doctrine that we are all sinners uh, should be enough to remind them of that permanent possibility. Succumbing to such sensations has, of course, been a sad fact of much of Christian history and has disfigured the political behaviour of Christians in many ways, including violent persecutions and the killing of one another. These sins are often emboldened by a sense of self-righteousness that can distort the true instinct of faith. The persistence of such impulses needs to give place, as it has in many believers, to a principled commitment to the valuable ideals of liberal democracy and the virtues in their own traditions that can support those ideals. Only then can religious people put to rest the partial truth in W.H. Auden's cynical comment, the only reason the Protestants and Catholics have given up the idea of universal domination is because they've realised they can't get away with it. Thank you. Mm -hmm.